We're going to start a series on spiritual warfare uh, this morning. I don't know how long the series will go, but this is part one. And uh, we're continuing in our study of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And we come to the passage where he describes spiritual warfare. And I want you to read with me just four verses from verses 10 through uh, 13. We're not going to look at those verses this morning, but they're going to be the um, backdrop to my remarks to you. And then the next several weeks, we're going to study those verses on through the uh, 20th verse in which Paul describes the, uh, the armor that we put on, the armor of God against spiritual warfare. Verse 10, he writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, lest you think that there is no such thing as a personal devil, let me assure you there is. Satan is alive and he is well and he is working his schemes. And Paul alerts the church to that effect. And there are always some people uh, who don't believe that. Recently, uh, there was an article in, uh, I guess, Time magazine. The Catholic Church uh, is divided over the existence of Satan. The Archbishop of New York says, yes, we're doing, um, uh, what is it, deliverances, uh, but uh, all their theologians are saying, no, this is all just legend. It doesn't, these, these demons don't really exist. Satan and his demons do exist. Let me assure you of that fact. Let me assure you of that fact. And so Paul alerts the church to the reality, and he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're not struggling against people. Your struggle is not against that, that person in your life. Your struggle is against powers that are behind that person, influencing that person. We have to develop through vision. We have to see what's going on and understand what's going on in that other realm that governs and affects so profoundly the realm that we have visibility of. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But against, now look at, look at the words he uses. Against the rulers. He uses the word the, the definite article. He's not being vague. The rulers. There are ruling powers against the authorities. There are ruling authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There are spiritual beings that reign, that rule in the heavenlies. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Paul, in the letter to the church at Ephesus, as we've been studying through it, and if you've been following closely with his line of reasoning, describes to us in the first three chapters a true Christian. He gives us 
the description of the true Christian in the first three chapters. If you want to understand what it means to be a Christian, if you want to understand who you are in Christ, a born-again person, you study the first three chapters and you'll understand God's design and how he describes a Christian. In chapter 4 and 5 and in the first half of chapter 6, at least through verse 9 anyway, Paul describes there how the faithful and true Christian lives out his life. So we have the description of the Christian, then we have how the Christian lives out his life. And beginning in verse 10 of chapter 6, as we just read, through chapter 20, Paul describes the reality of spiritual warfare against the true Christian who is living faithfully. The faithful Christian life, the faithful Christian life is not a honeymoon. The faithful Christian life is a battle. It is a warfare on, on a grand scale. Now just because we don't see our enemy doesn't mean he doesn't exist and doesn't mean that the warfare isn't real. Now we're going to look through some scriptures and describe to you something of how Satan attacks Christians, something of how Satan attacks the churches. But you need to understand, the faithful Christian life, as Paul describes it, leads ultimately to warfare. That's why he describes this to us in the book of Ephesians. He wants us to know. He wants us to be prepared. He wants us to understand the, the armor of God that we are to put on, that we might stand against this warfare, and that, in fact, we might have victory. Yes, victory. When God is blessing, when people are being obedient, when the kingdom is moving forward, Satan fights against it. Satan struggles against the kingdom. He is absolutely committed to the cause of somehow defeating God. You say, well, doesn't he know that he's already lost? Hasn't he read the last chapter? Yes, he knows. He knows, but he still thinks there's some outside chance that he might be able to beat God. And so he's fighting viciously to try to overturn his ultimate destiny that it might not actually happen. And who does he attack? He attacks the church. He attacks individual Christians. He attacks advancing churches. Beloved, we are on the offensive. Do you understand that? We are not on the defense. We are on the offensive. Mark this verse. Matthew chapter 12, verse 11. Matthew chapter 12, verse 11. Jesus says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God is advancing forcefully. And it is forceful men who take hold of it. We're on the offense. We are plundering Satan's household. Jesus has gone in. He's bound the strong man. And he's given us power and authority to go into, into Satan's household, into his kingdom, and plunder it. We are on the offense. But Satan is still fighting back. And when you are a faithful Christian... And let me give you this, the highlights of, of what it means to be a faithful Christian. Beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, just real quickly. 
Paul says there, if we are living worthy of our calling. If we're living worthy of our calling. In verse 2 he says, in humility rather than in pride. In verse 5, in unity rather than divisiveness. In verses 22 through 24 of chapter 4 he says, in the new self rather than the old self. In chapter 5, the first three verses, he says, if we're living in love rather than lust. Verses 8 and 9, in light rather than darkness. Verse 15, in wisdom rather than foolishness. Verse 18, in the fullness of the Spirit rather than in wine or other substances. And finally, verse 21, in mutual submission rather than in self-serving independence. If we're living the faithful Christian life, we can be absolutely certain of opposition and conflict. Because then, and only then, are we a definite threat to him. And he somehow wants to get into your life and he wants to discourage you. He wants to deceive you. He wants to defeat you. Why? Because if he can immobilize you, you are no longer a threat to his kingdom. You can no longer be used by God in somehow in that incredible mystery of pulling down strongholds built up around other people's lives. John, Tony came and talked to me Friday night. That man you guys prayed for, you and George? Two of our brothers, two of our many church shepherds, went and prayed for this man. Tony, what was his last name? Ambrusio. What is it? Ambrusio. Ambrusio. This man was in a mental institution. He had a cancer of the brain. He was, I'll never forget this. A couple of years ago, I saw his mom bring him in. I was standing at the top of the stairs. His mom brought him in, full-grown man. He was, he was just trailing behind her. She had him by the hand. He was trailing behind her. Blank empty. I thought, oh my. But two of our brothers went and prayed for him. God healed him. He came and shared. He's in a couple Friday nights. He's going to come share a testimony. He sat here Friday night and wept at God's faithfulness, how God delivered him sovereignly from the grip of Satan. Awesome. And I remember, and I told him, I said, I remember when your mother brought you in here. And this man is precious. You should see him. Awesome. Satan does not want you and I to understand that we're on the winning side and we have power and authority. And he is going to attack. When you become a Christian and you begin to live the faithful Christian life, you can expect attacks. But you don't need to live in fear of them. God means for us to be aggressive and assertive Christians, taking territory every day, not intimidated one bit by our circumstances. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Not intimidated one bit by our circumstances. On fire. As we grow stronger, guess what? So will Satan's attacks. But his attacks never are stronger than we are in Christ. Never. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. Isn't that exciting? Jesus' own ministry proves how Satan's attacks are unrelenting. 
And the stronger, the more forceful the ministry, the stronger the attack becomes. But Satan never wins. That's the, that's the exciting thing. He never wins. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 4, verse 2, Luke records the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It began that 40 days, with 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. Remember that? Luke records that Satan was out there in the wilderness tempting Jesus those whole 40 days and 40 nights. Ferocious temptations. But that wasn't the end of it. He dogged Jesus' heels through his whole ministry. Jesus' enemies were constantly after him, unrelentingly, never letting up on him. And it culminated. Do you know where the attack culminated? Not on the cross. Not on the cross. The cross was, as significant as it is to our faith, the cross was anticlimactic. Anticlimactic to, to, uh, to what happened to Satan's attack. Where Satan's attack climaxed on Jesus was in the garden. Was in the garden of, Eden, or of Gethsemane. You remember Jesus took Peter, James, and John up with him and he said, uh, left the other disciples behind and he said, now pray, pray that you don't fall into temptation. Now of course they didn't pray and they what? They fell asleep. But Jesus continued to pray, and it was there in that garden where the attack really was mounted against him. What do you suppose Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to do? Not go to the cross. Not go to the cross. In fact, Jesus, three times as he's praying, says to the Father, Can this, can this cup pass from me? Father, can we do this in another way? But he continued to pray, and finally he comes out of the prayer and he says, Not my will be done but yours. Satan was blowing in his ear, I'm absolutely sure, saying, You don't have to do this. He took him back three and a half years to that 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness where he tempted him there not to go through it. But the anxiety, the intensity of that time of that trial, of that attack on Jesus, at literally the height of his ministry, was so intense that Jesus literally sweat blood. The anxiety was so great. The writer to the Hebrews says, we've not, we've not experienced that. We've not shed our blood. We've not sweat blood yet. But you see, the attack is true for every Christian. The Christian who is no longer fighting against the world and the flesh and the devil has either fallen into sin or is complacent. Has either fallen into sin or is complacent. The Christian who has no conflict, who's not experiencing the fight, in my mind has retreated from the front lines of service has retreated from the front lines of service. In the book of Acts, in chapter 19, that records Paul's coming to the city of Ephesus and his ministry in Ephesus for three years. Luke records that. And when Paul first went to Ephesus, he immediately began to what? Preach the gospel. And Luke records in the first seven verses 
uh, Paul encounters some disciples of John the Baptist and he preaches Jesus Christ to them and he leads them to a saving faith in Christ. And they get filled with the Holy Spirit. In verses 10 through 12 of that chapter, Luke records that Paul speaks in the synagogue in that city for three months. And then he moves to the school of Tyrannus where he speaks for over two years. Powerful ministry is going on. So much so that Luke says this, so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord and God was performing miracles through Paul. Awesome ministry was going on there in Ephesus as Paul was preaching the gospel. In verses 17 through 20, uh, Luke records that Paul led many Jews and Gentiles to the knowledge of Christ. And those who had practiced sorcery, do you remember it was a city of great idolatry and witchcraft, those who had practiced sorcery burned their books. There was a great huge bonfire in the middle of the city. All these people gotten saved, brought all their occultic materials, and they burned it. And the word was spreading and growing in power. So powerful ministry was happening by the hand of Paul in Ephesus. But there was opposition also. And the opposition came right from the beginning. When Paul was preaching in the synagogue for three months, what moved him to the school of Tyrannus was the persecution of the Jews in the synagogue. They drove him out of the synagogue. That's recorded in verses 8 and 9. In verses 13 and 16, we see that Paul is mimicked by some apostate Jewish exorcists. And so there's, there's opposition from that perspective. In verses 23 through 40, we see the opposition heat up uh, through the silversmith Demetrius and all of his uh, fellow silversmiths because Paul's preaching was resulting in lots and lots of people getting saved. And Demetrius and his fellow silversmiths were responsible for fashioning, making small um, uh, statues and articles uh, involved in the pagan worship in Ephesus. And so all these other people are getting saved. They're not buying these guys' goods anymore. They're really upset at Paul. And it really heats up after that. So he's severely, severely persecuted. Paul knew that where there was um, the greatest spiritual potential, there was also going to be uh, the greatest danger in opposition. Now, I'm not saying this to frighten us. Paul doesn't tell us these things to frighten us. He tells us these things to prepare us and to assure us that we have access to weapons that are powerful, to the effective tearing down of strongholds, as he says in Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, Paul is in Ephesus. He writes to the Corinthians. He writes this letter to them. And he tells them, he says, I want to stay longer in Ephesus. They're expecting him to come. He says, but I want to stay longer in Ephesus because a great door of effective work has opened for me. And then he says, and many oppose me. And many oppose me. He understood that there was spiritual opposition to the advancement of the kingdom of God, but he was not going to fail in the face of it. 
He understood the principle that an easy ministry is a weak ministry. An easy ministry is a weak ministry. If you've got, a, if you've got opposition in your life and you are faithfully serving the Lord, you've got to know that you're probably right in the center of God's will because the enemy is throwing such a tremendous attack at you. The temptation will come. The enemy will say, well, why don't you quit? Why don't you give up? It is so hard. It, it should, certainly, God doesn't mean for it to be this difficult. You persevere. You don't quit. You persevere. Because the God of all grace who called you to his glory in Christ Jesus, he himself, after you may have suffered for a little while, he himself will strengthen Confirm, perfect, and establish you. He will lift you up as you wait upon him. As you stand firm, as Paul says in our passage in Ephesians. So if you're looking for an easy ministry, forget it. Any real vital ministry is not an easy ministry. Where the Lord's work is genuinely being done, Satan will not fail to oppose it. Beloved, we are not only God's sons, we are not only his servants, we are also his soldiers. Think about that. We're his soldiers. And the duty of a soldier is to what? Is to fight the enemy. Fight the enemy. That's exciting when you think about it. Now some people foolishly run off and fight the enemy without putting on their armor, without using the weapons. Some people are involved presumptuously in the warfare and uh, they run into all sorts of trouble. We're going to study how you fight the battle in the next several weeks. So it's very, very important that you pay close attention. But this background is important to understand. Even God's holy angels experienced opposition when they ministered for him. Do you remember when Daniel prayed? Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. He prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed, and it seemed as if there was no answer forthcoming from God. And after three weeks, finally an angel shows up on the scene, and this angel was so awesome that Daniel almost died looking at him. But the angel says, don't be afraid, Daniel. Don't be afraid. I've come to bring you an answer in response to your prayer. I want you to know that the very day you prayed, your prayer was heard on high. God heard your prayer and he sent me to answer it. But, he says, I have been withstood, I have been opposed by the prince of Persia for 21 days. And this angel, I mean, when you read the description of the angel and Daniel's response upon seeing him, uh, Daniel falls over. Boy, I tell you, he is just freaked out when he sees this being. Can you imagine the prince of Persia who had the power to withstand this particular angel? And then this angel says, but Michael came and helped me. Michael came and helped me. I want to see Michael. <laughs> In Jude, the book of Jude, verse 9, Jude records an interesting event. He says that Michael even had a battle with Satan over the body of Moses. So God's, God's own angels, his ministering spirits, even experienced opposition. There is warfare in the heavenlies. But I want you to be, be comforted. The angels 
outnumber Satan at least two to one. Two to one. Plus, they're all the saints. Plus, God. <laughs> the odds are definitely in our favor. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18. Listen to what Paul writes to the Thessalonian church. He said, we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, again and again. He says, but Satan stopped us. There was opposition. There's always going to be opposition. When you're following the Lord, when you're invested in ministry, when you're working, serving, expanding the kingdom, there is going to be opposition. But the Lord is going to go before you and make your way straight. But Paul is just giving us visibility. He says, Satan stopped us. He warned the Ephesian elders. I want you to turn to book of Acts chapter 20. He warned the Ephesian elders that there would be warfare from outside and from within the church even. And the warfare is going to be instigated by that spiritual realm. Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and 30. Paul writes, now he's just getting ready to leave them. He's been with them three years. He's built tremendous relationships. Many, many people have come to a saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. He's getting ready to move. He's getting ready to board the ship. They're there on the beach. They kneel down and pray. But he shares with them these sentiments. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Paul says, when I leave, there's going to be an attack. That church at Ephesus was a powerful church. Great and mighty things were happening in that city. And Satan was going to attack them. He goes on, he says, So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Paul understood the intensity of the attack and he understood how these people needed to stand firm. He warned them, he exhorted them, he encouraged them to be on the alert. Be on the alert. Satan is on the prowl. Peter says that. Your enemy, the devil, is prowling about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, seeking someone to have for lunch. Are we to be afraid of him? No! We're just to be alerted to his schemes. We're told to be on the alert, be aware. If you are a biblically literate Christian, if you are a student of the word, if you're learning the word of God to know it, to understand it, if you're hiding in your heart through memorization, if you're meditating on it daily, you will know the word. Jesus says you will know the truth. You will not be outwitted by the schemes of the devil. He'll not catch you with a blind side. You'll know his schemes. You'll understand how he works. You'll be on the alert. 
But it's so vitally important that we, that we know this book. There's so many people who profess to be Christians who are ignorant of what's going on in this book. And the church has hamstrung as a result. And his schemes are not always obvious. That's why we've got to know what's in that book. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. We're going to quickly look at Jesus' words to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Because as we look at these seven churches, as we look at his words to these churches, we're going to gain some tremendous insight into how Satan attacks churches. But he never attacks a church, but that he's attacking the individuals in that church. Isn't that true? He's going to come against the individual members of that church. And he's going to begin to attack the church through its membership, through the people in that church. And we see this reflected in Jesus' words to the seven churches in Asia Minor. These were historical churches. And they are prototypes for the church down through the next two centuries. And we'll see some things that are frighteningly familiar. The first two churches... I'm sorry, not the first two, but the only two that are not warned or condemned by Jesus are the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia. Those churches experienced uh, tremendous persecution. Both churches did at the hands of uh, tremendous persecutors. Uh, Jesus calls the attacks coming from the synagogue of Satan. So both churches knew tremendous persecution. They were also strong evangelical, evangelistic. Persecution really is an effective thing that God uses to purify the church. Evangelism is a powerful thing in the church, in the life of the church, to keep that church moving forward. These two elements keep the believers, the individual believers' eyes off of themselves and they keep them dependent upon the Lord. They keep the believers' eyes on His power and His will. Man, there's nothing like persecution to get your eyes on Jesus. Isn't that true? There's nothing like evangelism when you are really, really committed to evangelizing and preaching the gospel and leading people to Christ. There is nothing like that to keep your eyes on the Lord and keep you perfectly dependent upon Him. You don't focus on yourself anymore, at least as much. So these two elements are tremendously helpful in purifying to the church. And we see those two elements in Smyrna and Philadelphia. But let's look at the other five churches. And as we study the other five churches, you'll see a, a progression in the seriousness of the warnings to these churches. And we're going to start with Ephesus, the church we've been studying uh, these past months. There's a phrase that's going to describe each church, and I just want you to write these phrases down in your notes. The phrase that can be used to describe the church at Ephesus is the loss of their first love for Christ. The loss of their first love for Christ. Now, the Christians at Ephesus were active. They were active in good works. They were active in persevering. 
They were intolerant of sin. They opposed false teaching. And they patiently endured hardship for Christ's sake. Now, does not that sound like an on-fire church? Doing everything they should be doing? I mean, doesn't that sound like a great church? Absolutely. But they had nevertheless left their first love. That's what Jesus says in verses 2 and 4. Their original, single-minded, and devoted love for the Lord himself. This is vitally important for us. In a lot of ways, we can be compared to the church at Ephesus. And so, listen up. Although they lived in the midst of one of the most corrupt cities in the Roman Empire, and that was Ephesus. It was a seat of idolatry, pagan worship, immorality like you wouldn't believe. And these Christians living in the midst of that, they faithfully maintained right doctrine. They faithfully maintained pure moral standards. You say, my gosh, what else could you expect? They were really right on. But there was their one great flaw, and Jesus says, and indeed, that one flaw seems small in comparison to these other tremendous things that they were doing. That one flaw was the loss of their first love for Christ. Jesus says, but I have this one thing against you. And this one thing was enough to outweigh all the other righteousness that they could point to. You see, the thrill was gone. The enthusiasm was low. The zeal had flattened out into pure orthodox habit and tradition. Oh, they were obedient, but there was no joy. There was no enthusiasm. There was no zeal. They'd lost their love, their love for the Lord. Oh, how I like to be around new Christians. New Christians, that's why I love my Roots class so much, because there's always new Christians in there, and they're on fire. They're hungry. They want to know. They're wanting to come up and talk to me. They're wanting to ask questions. They're wanting to tell me, how do I witness to my mother? How do I witness to my father? Oh, they're persecuting me at work. Hallelujah. Praise God. <laughs> I mean, these people are on fire. They're enthusiastic. They're zealous. They're fresh. They're fun to be around. Oh, they make mistakes. Who cares? And how many times have we heard the older, more mature Christians <laughs> say, well, you know, I, I just kind of, I don't feel that same old joy. I don't have that same enthusiasm I did when I first received Christ. As if that's normal, that should be normal. No, what does Paul say in Romans chapter 12? He says, stay on fire. This church had lost the fire. They'd lost their zeal. They'd lost their enthusiasm. And I hear that much too much around here. There are too many Christians coming to Hope Chapel saying, well, you know, I don't know. A man came up to me last night. This was so exciting after the service. He told me, he said, I've been a Christian for over 20 years. He said, I got saved in the Jesus movement. And I was excited about Jesus. And somehow my zeal just kind of flattened out. Oh, I've lived an orthodox life. I've served the Lord. I've been obedient. I've kind of plotted through. I come to church every weekend. I go to mini church. He said, but tonight was the first time in 20 years that I raised my hands and praised him. Isn't that exciting? 
He got on fire again. He made a decision. Jesus, I love you. And if our obedience doesn't emanate from our love, it's worthless, Jesus is saying. If it doesn't emanate from our love for him. You can't love one another unless you love him. Unabashedly, unashamedly. Lord, I love you. And not just on Sunday morning. Throughout the week. So in love with Jesus. People say, how are you? I'm thankful. Why are you thankful? Because I love Jesus and he loves me. <laughs> well, that guy's weird. One of those religious nuts. Yeah, I'm a religious nut. Hallelujah. Who cares? I love Jesus. And I want him to know it and I want everybody else to know it. And I'm going to reaffirm that love for him every single day. Why? Because the enemy doesn't want you to be joyful. He doesn't want you filled with a love for Jesus Christ. And he's going to do everything he can to make you sophisticated and cool. Can you dig it? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> the throat was gone. Orthodox, fundamental believers are inclined to believe that they love God simply because they have a high regard for His Word and for His standards. Oh, I love God. How could you possibly suggest that I don't? <laughs> well, you sure don't act like it. I mean, sure don't. I don't see it. You know, have you, anybody here ever been in love? You ever been in love? What's it like when you're in love? I love my wife. I said, oh, darling, no. I love my darling. She's all red now. Sorry. <laughs> you, know what, you know what it is to be in love? I mean, you want to tell people about the person you're in love with, don't you? And you're, not, and you're, you're proud. You're, oh, I want you to meet my sweetie. Where is that love in the church? Far too many people in our church have somehow grown cold in their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Though they live orthodox lives, obedient lives, they've lost the fire. They've lost the fire. Are you one of those people? Are you one of those people? Because Jesus says, I have this against you. You've lost your first love for me. Lovelessness, beloved, lovelessness grieves the Holy Spirit of God. And it gives a greater foothold for Satan in your life. When a believer or a body of believers loses its deep sense of love for the Lord, that believer or that church is on the brink of spiritual disaster. Think about it. And that's what Jesus is warning the church at Ephesus. How does it begin? How do we find ourselves in that, in that downward cycle away from loving Him? I think it begins by simply forgetting the joy of those first experiences after salvation. The joy, the, the, the thrill of Bible study. The thrill, I mean, I love studying this book. 
I get into this book and I start studying, and I, man, I can't stop. As many of you, 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 you understand, I mean, I keep coming at you with more and more and more stuff. You say, where does he get all this stuff? The joy of Bible study. The thrill of worship. Some people actually come to church and they, they deliberately come late because they want to miss the singing. Can you imagine that? They actually come late deliberately because they want to miss the singing and they leave early because they don't want to be involved in the singing. Can you imagine that? I have no category for that. I would think that if you love the Lord, you'd want to get here early. You'd rise up an hour earlier to get here so that you could get up front and raise your hands and praise Him. Amen? Amen. I can't imagine why people want to leave early. And some of you, when I close my Bible, you close your Bibles and you close your minds. Not everybody, but some. I see it. It's just like something, a glaze goes over your face. Rather than saying, oh boy, now, now the real worship begins. Now we get to take the offering. Now we get to sing his praises. We've received his word and now we need to really tell him how much we love him and thank him. The thrill of Bible study, the thrill of worship, the thrill of prayer. And the thrill, beloved, of fellowship. It's through these things that we get a, a real sense of our oneness with Christ and we enter in more intimately to that relationship and we express and experience our love for him. In verse 5, Jesus says to them, Remember how you were before your love became cold? Remember how you were before your love became cold? He says, Repent and return. Repent and return. The only spiritual service that we can do of any worth, of any significance, is loving service. So get back to the fire. Get back to the fire. Get back to the source. Get back to the power. Get back to the word daily. How many, how many would admit to this, just by raising your hands, how many would admit to this that there's maybe two, three, four days in a row that you've not read the Word? How many would admit to that on a regular basis? Hmm, interesting. How many would admit to maybe two, three, maybe even four days in a row that you've not prayed? I mean, spent time with the Lord. Daily. We've got to be in the Bible. We've got to go to the well daily. Think of it. If you don't talk to your wife, you don't talk to someone who you profess to really love, you don't talk to that person for three or four days. How can you possibly say that you love that person? That person ought to be a priority. Isn't that true? Absolutely. Get back to close Christian fellowship. Get back to praising the Lord. Praising the Lord. The psalmist says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. The living creatures around the throne praise the Lord. Every waking moment. 
But the church at Ephesus did not repent. It did not return. And as Jesus said, he did remove their lampstand. And that church soon went out of existence. Love. Love the Lord. And Satan will come and he will try to rob you. He'll discourage you. He'll try to deceive you. He'll, he'll, he'll uh, put other things in your way. He'll distract you so that your love for the Lord begins to wane. And it will grow cold if you allow him access to you. The church of Pergamum, the second church, the phrase that describes this church was compromise with the world. Compromise with the world. And I'm afraid that these things will afflict us. Compromise with the world. Being a Christian in Pergamum was difficult. It was not an easy thing. Jesus commends them. They were basically faithful except for that one issue of compromise with the world. There were two prevalent teachings going on. The teaching of Balaam, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And essentially that teaching is, 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 is the same. If you remember Balaam in Numbers, the book of Numbers, Balaam was, was a prophet called by uh, King Balak to come and curse Israel. Do you remember that? And God told Balaam, he said, don't you curse my people, you pronounce blessings on them. And several times Balaam came and he pronounced a blessing on Israel, which really frustrated King Balak. So finally, later on, what happens is Balaam goes to the king and he says, now I know how to get to Israel. What you do is you send your women down there and your women start uh, enticing the Israelite men and pretty soon you'll have the nation in your hands. And that's exactly what he did. He followed Balaam's advice. He followed Balaam's teaching and Israel succumbed to the temptation to compromise. And they entered into idolatry and they entered into immorality and you know the rest of the story. Well, the Nicolaitans were an intense, the, 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 the New Testament uh, counterpart to Balaam. The Nicolaitans taught that, that you could have your cake and eat it too. They would teach, well, Paul says that where sin abounds, grace abounds more. So you can do whatever you want and God will basically forgive you. And there's a lot of Christians who believe that. A lot of Christians who practice that. Who, will, who willfully go off and sin. They say, well, God will forgive me. After I have my cake, you know, I can go and get forgiven. And so it was the church at Pergamum that was compromising with the world, and Christ really has, has a hard time with that. This is one of the greatest dangers of the church today. Too many believers are inclined to accommodate to nearly every worldly practice. This idea of being relevant I want to be relevant. I want to be able to relate so that people can uh, hear from me. Trying to be relevant only opens the door for materialism in your life and immorality. Trying to be relevant. Be careful of being relevant. Because when the world becomes preoccupied with its things, when the world becomes preoccupied with material things, so then does the church. When the world becomes uh, lowers its moral standards, you find the church lowering its moral standards. When the world becomes entertainment crazed, so doesn't the church. The church wants to be entertained. 
The tragedy is, you talk to Bible teachers today who've been teaching the Bible for years, and they'll tell you they've seen a transition in the mentality of the people, whereas people could sit and they could listen, they could absorb the scriptures, powerful, meaty stuff. Now, their attention span is so short because TV has taught them you can only take it in short bites. We want to be entertained. And that's a tremendous danger that Satan has presented the church and is tripping up the church with. When the world glorifies self-worth and self-fulfillment, what happens to the church? The same thing. The church becomes inward and self-absorbed. And people run around saying, well, I want to be self-fulfilled. My self-esteem is low. Good, your self-esteem is low. That's humility. Think about it. That's humility. You don't want to think highly of yourself. You want to understand and see yourself in perspective. You think highly of yourself in Christ. In Christ. The church is not a subculture. The church has been designed, is intended by God to be a counterculture. We are to be entirely different than the world. When people see you, they say, there's a Christian. I know. I can spot him a mile away. Do they say that about you? Or are you disguised? The church of Thyatira, described by the phrase, tolerance of sin. Tolerance of sin. Again, many good things to commend that church. But it became the victim of a false teacher, a false prophetess in their midst, who led many believers into idol worship and into sexual immorality associated with it. And the church and its leaders tolerated her and her doctrine. Jesus calls her Jezebel after, after the wife of King Ahab back in the book of First and Second Kings. Now Thyatira was a city, very interestingly, whose economic life was dominated by trade guilds or unions, if you will. And uh, in these unions, it was required that you be involved in the pagan religious practices. The Christian convert in that city faced a dilemma. If you became a Christian, then you either had to compromise your faith by participating in these practices, or if you chose not to compromise your faith, then you were faced with, with uh, social isolation, essentially, and as well as economic ruin. You were outside. You couldn't work. But this teacher who'd come into the church that, that uh, Jesus names Jezebel, she begins to preach and teach and gives accommodations to these people which will allow them to go, and she, and she, she gives them rationalization. She says, after all, look it. You don't need to suffer. You can come in, go to these worship dinners, go to these idolatrous worship practices. You, after all, everyone knows that these idols aren't real. So you can go, and no problem, and you can still work. No. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But she gives them these rationalizations. What happens when you start flirting with sin? Is it very long before you're drawn in? 
It doesn't take much to rationalize doing it, does it? Involving yourself. Not at all. But so she's, she's coming and she's saying, you guys can do this. It'll be all right. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's okay. And Jesus comes out and he says, listen to what he says against her. He says, so I will, in verse 20, uh, 22, is it? 22. He says, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make her uh, make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Jesus is very serious about coexisting with sin. There are some people in our church who are coexisting with sin, who are tolerant of sin. The fourth church, Sardis, is even worse. And it's, it's characterized by the phrase contentment with programs and activities. This one has me worried. Contentment with programs and activities. It was a large congregation, had many activities. It even had a reputation for being alive. But the Lord declared it to be dead in verse 1. And indeed, the city of Sardis was a very wealthy city, but it soon passed off the scene. Its wealth and its power uh, could not resist the onslaughts of the Greeks and the Romans. But the point is, when a church substitutes a wealth of programs, a wealth of activities, ceremonies, human issues for the Lord and for His work, it becomes a spiritual corpse despite its appearance of vitality. We have lots and lots of programs. We have lots and lots of activities. But the constant tension is to keep our focus on the Lord. Keep our focus on the Lord's work. What is the Lord's work? To preach the gospel and to make disciples. All of our programs and activities are to support the activity of preaching the gospel and making disciples. They are not the focus of our fellowship. Our mini churches, our ministries are to have an outward focus. Preach the gospel, reaching out into the community, reaching out of the neighborhoods, drawing people in, making disciples in the context of those groups and those activities. That's the Lord's work. That's exactly what Sardis was not doing. It had no spiritual life because God was not there, although it appeared to be vital. The church at Sardis was the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. Is your Christianity offensive? It better be. It better be. Don't you be the offense. Don't you be offensive. Paul says the gospel is the offense. Let your life, how you live it, let your words, your speech, be true to the New Testament, and if that's true to the New Testament, how you live your life, boy, is going to trouble some people. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is going to be convicting them. You're going to be offensive to them. Don't strive to be inoffensive. Polite. Well, I don't want to offend anybody. Preach the gospel. Don't be afraid to tell people, listen, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're going to hell. And I care enough to tell you. 
Now, they may not want to hear that, but they'll never forget it. Don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. The kingdom of God is advancing forcefully, and it is forceful men that lay hold of it. Not mice. Not timid people. Forceful people. Assertive people. Appropriately assertive. The last church, Laodicea, described as satisfaction with possessions, satisfaction with themselves. Laodicea had absolutely nothing to commend it, not even a superficial semblance of life. Its members were totally indifferent to the things of God. And indifference, though it seems like it's a harmless spiritual disease, has killed off more believers and more churches than anything else. Indifference. It's the indifferent, the hypocritical, the religious self-satisfaction that is even more nauseating to God than outright immorality. Indifference, indifference is the thing that just causes God to spit you right out of his mouth. He says it in verses 15 and 16. He says, I, I wish that you were, you were ice cold. I wish that you were raging hot. But because you're lukewarm, I spit you out of my mouth. You see, it's the ice cold heart that God can woo with his love and his grace. It's the warm, hot heart towards him that God can embrace. But it's the lukewarm one that caused him to spit him out in disgust. In absolute disgust. Laodicea was totally hypocritical. It was the phony church that wasn't a church, although it said it was. And I believe that Laodicea is the model for the liberal church today that calls itself Christian, and yet it denies Christ's deity. It denies his perfect sacrifice on the cross. It denies his resurrection. It denies the authority of his word. It denies his standards. Fundamentally, it denies Christ. It is humanistic meaning man-centered, man-worshiping. It may have the look of the church. It may have an ecclesiastical shell. It may have great money. It may have worldwide influence. But believe you me, it does not have the Lord. It doesn't care for the Lord. It doesn't care for the things of the Lord. It has no sense of the need for the Lord having everything it wants in itself. It rejects the Lord, and he rejects it. And so we see the pattern of how Satan attacks churches. He attacks them to try to cool down their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. He attacks them by uh, getting them to compromise with the world. He attacks them by allowing them to be tolerant with sin. He attacks them by their uh, contentment with programs and activities. And he attacks them through indifference. So that they are uh, satisfied with their possessions and satisfied with themselves. They see no need beyond themselves. Satan attacks the churches. And Paul warns us in the verses that we looked at earlier. And he gives us encouragement and warning to be prepared 
to put on the armor, to be strong in the strength of the Lord, and to fight and to stand, not to cave in. We're not unaware of his schemes. Amen? All right, let's pray.